You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Australia went to war against the emus. And what makes it so great is Australia lost. They lost the war. What can they teach us? Well, Chris, that story really does illustrate human wild conflict to like the highest degree that I think we've talked about on the podcast. I don't know if we've had anything like a war. Like a war against- yeah. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. All right. So last week we started with something that sounded like a bird, and it was the copybara. This week, we start with something that should be a copy bear, but we're actually doing a bird. Or a drum. It sounds like a yes, drum to it me. Does. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it does. Uh, yeah. But it's a big podcast today. We are talking mm-hmm. about one of the most distinctive birds, pretty iconic from Australia, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. humongous, one of the biggest yeah. birds. Second largest, correct. Yep, 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 yep. We're going back down under again. <laughs> But we love you, Australia, and all of your amazing creatures. We do. We do. And this one was specially requested. So, you know, we've done a, a string of Aussie animals just because I was just over there. But also this one came through and I told Angie, we, we absolutely had to do this. And that was because one of our Patreon subscribers name is Nick. His mother got it for him for his birthday. So he is a is a young younger man that really loves the podcast, a budding conservationist. And for his birthday, he got a Patreon subscription, which was amazing. And so I spoke to his mom and I said, okay, what species does he want? And she said, well, he loves rat tights. Emu's his favorite. I said, done. It's on the list. So this is for you, Nick. Plus, I just saw a couple in Australia in the Corumban Wildlife Sanctuary. So that was really cool. And I've been Itching to talk about this one, Angie, for a long time because being across the Tasman Sea, there's this little bit of rivalry with Kiwis and Aussies. And, you know, I might, you know, tell some more jokes, but this one, the Great Emu War in Australia, it's it's a true story and I cannot wait to tell it. It is, uh, (laughs) it cracked me up. Well, yes, it's going to be a super fun podcast. And Nick, happy birthday, buddy. This emu is for you. (laughs) There you go. go. So, yeah, wonderful species. Like, there's so many cool factoids about this. So entertaining. It was a great recommendation. I love emus. They have them at my husband's zoo, the Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo. They're just, uh, the way they look, the way they walk, the way they move, everything, everything. So, yeah, lots of fun physiological facts today. Mm-hmm. Some really cool parenting that we'll be talking about, and uh, some of some really good dads. So that's always a fun one. So yeah, stick around. I think you'll learn a lot today. Yeah, it's a fun one. It's definitely a fun one. And yesterday, Angie and I had a live with our Patreon subscribers. And shout out to Melanie and the others that joined us on there. It was great. We actually turned over and went did Facebook Live. After that, spoke to some folks, 
Uh, we're going to start doing that every month now. So we're, we'll get that on the schedule. So you can check that out uh, on our Facebook group, All Creatures Group, our Facebook page, All Creatures Podcast, our Instagram, All Creatures Podcast, and we'll be giving those dates out. But thank you so much to all of our Patreon subscribers. It means the world to Angie and I, and it's helping us uh, keep keep the lights on, keep paying for producing this, and also the website running. So check that out too, allcreaturespod.com. Yeah, and it was just so fun uh, talking with Melanie yesterday and learning all about her volunteer work and how she her citizen science with eagles. That's and so right. It just, yeah, 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 it's yeah. Just, it was a great conversation yeah. and just like minds us animal nerds hanging out together, uh, talking, sharing ideas, uh, sharing stories. So it's it's a great, fun place to be. And of course, if you can't afford Patreon, as Chris mentioned, just join our uh, All Creatures Podcast Facebook group. Follow us on Instagram. And probably the easiest thing you can do if you haven't already is uh, a five-star review on iTunes with a couple, a little kind, a little kind message always it goes pretty far for Chris and I. Yeah, we love that. So Switching gears, describing the emu, it's tall. I mean, it it is tall. It is <laughs> yes. tall. It's not as tall as an ostrich or an elephant bird, which we're going to talk about a little bit again today, or a moa, which is the other extinct rat height that went extinct mm-hmm. just a few hundred years ago in my backyard here in New Zealand. But it's it's, it's a tall bird, you know. It's, you can see eye to eye with it. Yeah, I mean, in general... If you think of an ostrich, it has some similarities to that, but also some pretty big differences. To begin with, the plumage or the feathers of the emu are light to dark brown in color, and they're not perfectly streamlined, so it gives their feathers almost like this shaggy-like appearance. And depending on where the emu lives, there's going to be some environmental variation depending on the overall hue of the feathers. But just beautiful, I think, beautiful plumage on adults. And the the chicks are pretty cool, too. They're actually born with dark brown with white longitudinal stripes running down from their neck all the way down their backs. It's just really unique, too. And, and researchers think this is to help give the, the chicks camouflage when they're younger and they're not as uh, powerful and fast runners as the adults. So a big difference, too, between ostriches and emus, besides a slight variation in size, is the emus have these big bodies, mm-hmm. but really tiny wings. Mm-hmm. And they're, this is a flightless bird, of course. And their wings of the emu are much smaller than an ostrich. The emu wings are only about eight inches. They've been reduced down to like six to eight inches or like the size of our human hand. So they almost remind me of like T-Rex hands. Yes. <laughs> They're <laughs> useless, just pretty, yeah. Where ostriches will open them up and will use their broader wings, bigger wings for a lot of communication, whether they're happy or sad or uh, for courtship and things like this. But yeah, the the emu just has this little this little T-Rex wing. Or best, I guess, uh, I should use science terms since we're on a science podcast. Very small vestigial wings, capable mm-hmm. of flapping but not helping in mobility or doing much for communications. And the neck of the emu is very long, similar to an ostrich. It's very sparsely covered in feathers. But what's super cool about the emu's neck is it has this like bluish green hue to it Mm -hmm. with little gray to brown feathers sticking out, just kind of like a messy bedhead. And so that's a good description. Yeah. And then these wild or sparse feathers actually go atop of the head, too. And to me, when you look at an emu straight on, their hair reminds me of like Einstein's hair Mm -hmm. in the posters Mm -hmm. where he always looks like he just has bed head. He's like one of the most brilliant minds of all time. Uh, But his hair is just like wild. So, yeah, their wispy black feathers on their head remind me of that. The face of the emu is beautiful to me. They have a large pointed beak, which is specialized for grazing. We'll talk a lot mm-hmm. about that. And they have beautiful red, amber, orangish colored eyes that really pop. So it gives them a very distinctive stare, I think, when they look at you. I, there's like they're thinking about something. <laughs> and then lastly, of course, the feet. I have a whole one or two slides on mm-hmm. how powerful and amazing their feet are and some of the adaptations with that. But the emu's feet, of course, don't have any feathers on it. 
and they're very long and very powerful and typically like black grayish in color. And we'll talk more about their feet in a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, their feet are, are quite unique and their musculature is very unique. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, when you're talking an ostrich nine feet tall, towers over us, emus max out almost just less than two meters or like six, six and a half feet. So almost eye to eye with me. And I did take a selfie with an emu when I was uh, in Australia. And I definitely was towering over this one. But it's, again, the way they walk and, and stand and stuff. Weight, 60 to 120 pounds, or that's almost up to 55 kilograms. So, but again, birds aren't heavy, you know, like like mammals. But they are the second largest, like Andy said, the second largest bird in the world. They're larger than the cassowaries and the rias, which are the other ratites. And then, of course, the kiwi. The, uh, the tiny ratite in that family group. So, you know, just a big, funny, charismatic, like. Oh, I could rat- watch them all day. Yeah. Like. <laughs> just so entertaining the way, just the way they move and, and their, the expressions they make on their face. And mm-hmm. like I said, just the, the, the sparse feathers on the, on the head really do it for me. Yeah. 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 It's a way to get to the great Emi war. You'll see how aggressive they are, but. Uh, you know, they were free ranging at the sanctuary I was at where the cassowary was not <laughs> just full of full of full of personality. Now, the range is very interesting, Angie. I, I did two things. I mean, obviously, you know, you have your your normal map mm-hmm. where you see they go. They do migrate, which I think you're, you'll talk some about, right? Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the new map that I pulled out that I'm going to start doing because it was I just I'm such an eBird nerd now. Thank you, Jesse. Is... I went into eBird and looked at the map of all the emu sightings in Australia. Where that is reported- fun. That's what I do with fish and wildlife in Florida for mm-hmm. all of the all of the exotic, <laughs> yeah, all the all of the invasive, I should say, uh, right. sightings in Florida. Yeah, yeah. The, so- the interactive maps are super fun. Oh yeah, yeah. So this is where all the emu sightings have been in Australia, and it it's pretty it's pretty radical because it or awesome. It just it everywhere there's a reported sighting pretty much maps matches up to where they their range is now some of the deep interior of australia in the deserts mm-hmm. where like nobody i mean i'm sure somebody's living out there but not many people not many animals or creatures emus don't go there they do go in some desert like regions but just not this interior of australia like up near alice springs uh, mm-hmm. and then a little bit further west you don't see them but and and then of course the suburbs and around Sydney, Brisbane, you probably don't see them around Melbourne, Chantel's area. Well, it's always fun too, Chris, when we cover a species that's not endangered. So mm-hmm. emus are at least concerned by the IUCN, and I I, w- I saw that their population was around seven hundred thousand. Yeah, depending yeah, yeah. on uh, the seasonal rains uh, each year. So that 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 makes me really happy. But yeah, and, yeah, and they are facing some challenges, but of course, but Australia's got you know more species that need a lot of love and focus. Like we we're just talking, like the quolls or certain species of wombat or some of these other critically endangered animals uh, that they're dealing with. But emus are doing generally well, like the kangaroos, you know, or the red kangaroos that we covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, plenty of them running around all of the different biomes in Australia. Oh yeah, Chris, that really impressed me too. How they they're really flexible. They can live in savanna forests, subtropical climates, grasslands. So they they do need water. So they do try to gravitate towards areas where they can find water. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, they want to stay out of deserts that don't have any water, and then I guess really heavily wooded areas. Yeah, and, and it's like pretty castle- flexible, right? Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a generalist. For yeah, sure. and they they do very well in Australia, where the cassowary is just up in that northern part. Right. Of the tropics where Mm -hmm. the emus there too, but everywhere else in between. So doing very well, very well in Australia. And, you know, very important to the biome there. And one of the things I looked at, Angie, was so we we keep talking seed dispersion, right? Mm -hmm. And the one thing I learned this week about emus is they migrate pretty far. I, I, I wouldn't have expected that, right? For a yeah. rat type. Mm-hmm. So one of the things is I, I came across was emus, certain plants have a specialized coating that during gi- 
digestion through the emu's digestive tract, they have a greater chance of germinating and, and becoming entrenched in the ground and sprouting and growing, right? So they have this, this mutualistic relationship. I think that's the right word mm -hmm. where they'll go and graze or eat some of these certain plants, get the seeds and then walk how many kilometers and then deposit it on the ground with some guano or poop, you mm -hmm. know, that helps fertilize the seed and then the seed sprouts. And so I found a, an interesting paper and I'm just going to be on this briefly because I really want to get to the great emu war, but it's, it's was titled emus as non-standard seed dispersers and their potential for long distance dispersal. And in general, they were just saying emus are, are just so important in maintaining plant health in the environment, these seed dispersers. So one of the things that got me really thinking, or got this paper stated that got me really thinking was they stated that this is so important to gene flow in plants and that the role that emus do in spreading these seeds and distributing these seeds as they migrate, helps plant populations stay healthy and their genetics diverse. So again, resistance to disease, just like us, plants also have to resist certain diseases. And it got me thinking like how do plants pollinate or how do plants spread their seeds? And they all have different strategies. You know, some attach to fur of animals and drops off, some blow in the wind. You know, you have some flowering plants. Uh, but these certain plants in Australia, and I didn't have the list of them. I, I I didn't go that deep in the paper, but there's a list of plants that have some sort of relationship with emus. So whenever we talk about seed dispersal, I know we mention it quite a lot. Remember, that's such a critical part of, what do we call it? Ecological engineers? You know, sure. Yeah, they okay. build, I was going to say cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they build up natural habitats and ecosystems, which include biotic factors. So anything that's alive. So the animals that we usually talk about in this podcast, but all of the plants and plant life too in the area. And then the ecosystem, of course, is going to consist of the abiotic factors as well, which are the non-living rocks and sand and dirt and climate and rainfall and other things that make an ecosystem what it is. And, uh, so, yeah, they are helping build up that particular ecosystem, the plant life there. Yeah. It wouldn't, ha yeah. it wouldn't happen without them. Yeah. And, and it, it goes back to the dodo and the dodo tree. And I know we covered that in a, a podcast, of, I don't know how many ago. And there is still some controversy with the science with that. But basically, they're saying because the dodo went extinct, the dodo tree is going extinct because it needed the dodo to right. uh, mm -hmm. germinate the seeds. But I think they're saying the tortoise was more important now. I don't know. I don't remember it all. Anyways, the bottom line is they're they're very critical. And that's what makes this next story so tragic, or what could have been tragic, but it actually turned out to be more tragic for the Australians. And that's the Great Emu War in 1932. Should I should I get my popcorn right now? Yes, this is a, <laughs> I've got this my, is a, I've I'm got going my to, bubble water. Yeah. Uh, I got my tongue in my cheek. But uh, this one is a is a great story. So there was a great emu war. And our listeners who aren't as familiar with Chris <laughs> should know that he's a big war buff. So this yes, is like I'm a history animal, guy. nerdy animal stuff, facts, and and history. historic it, war facts. So yeah. this is this is his jam. <laughs> so yes, it is. I true. hope you enjoy. Grab your popcorn. Uh, it is true. But it Aust is it's a cool story. It's a cool it, story. It is Australia went to war against the emus. And what makes it so great is Australia lost. They lost the war to the emus. Uh, yes, yes. So, so Nick, you're spoiler listening. Spoiler alert. Yes. Uh, the emus won. Big Your time. Emus, I would say big time. Yes. Mm -hmm. Whooped the Aussies. The Aussies. They, it was after World War I where the Aussies, yeah, it's a big thing down here too in New Zealand, the Anzacs. Great sacrifice in that horrific war that was just, oh, the history of it just makes me so upset because it's just a horrific war. But the Aussies did help win that war. And then obviously World War II, da, 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 da. So I'm not making fun of the Aussie military, but I am a little bit because they lost to a bird. 
Sarah's a flock It wasn't of one bird. It was a lot of emus. It's like 20,000 yeah. emus. Oh, <laughs> uh, the bloodshed. Okay, here we go. Here's the story. So after World War I, you know, this horrible war, a lot of these soldiers came home and the government started d- dishing out land, uh, in particularly Western Australia, for them to farm. You know, and, and, and I just thought that the trauma that all these poor soldiers, men and women, nurses, uh, went through during that time. So they go out to Western Australia and they start establishing their farms. But obviously there's, there's wildlife there like the emu. And it's, this is where I kind of learned that the emus migrate inland from the coast during the breeding season. So the, the great battles, the, a lot of these battles took place in, in Campion, Western Australia. And what happened was there's a lot of farmers there that were growing wheat. Well, an army of about 20,000 emus mounted an offensive on Campion. And they were, they were hell-bent on not taking any prisoners. They were going to eat all that wheat no matter what. And so 20,000 emus came in and you're going to find out how strong their legs are, but they had these rabbit proof fences that they set up in Australia and the emus trampled them down and then just started going to town and destroying all the the crops, like eating all the wheat. And because they're such large, large birds trampling all the crops. And, you know, I would say the emus won the first battle because they went in and took over the land and said, this is our land. Ha ha ha. Nothing you can do about it. You know, I get to see all these birds out there, all this wheat. So totally. The farmers were upset. Rightfully there's, so. There's 20,000 emus. You know, you yeah. come from a farming family. 20,000 emus destroyed your crops and your own livelihood. So the farmers went to the government and said, you have to do something because uh, we can't fight these birds. We can't go out and, and do anything. So, so the next day, Australia declared war on the emu and said, okay. So they sent the military with machine guns to mount an offensive and push back the emus, right? So machine had, guns, auto, machine automatic guns. rifles that yes. pretty much killed like thousands and thousands and thousands of people horrifically in World War One. So they send these machine guns to kill the emus. So the first battle took place between the Australian army and the emus on the second of November in 1932. And there was about 50 emus they saw. So they figured, okay, you know, this is a scout party. They're going to go find the main body, kind of drive them and ambush them, right? So as this large herd of a thousand emus was being kind of coming down, I don't know the whole story, but coming down this this place where they were going to ambush them, the birds were smart. They sensed a trap and they took off and they broke into small groups you know, and they were probably zigging and zagging and they made very difficult <laughs> targets so that they start opening up with this machine guns and they might have killed maybe 12 emu. That was it. The, 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 they fired thousands and thousands of rounds and they, they might have got yeah. a few birds, right? And so they pretty much, you know, it was a draw, score one to the emu because they didn't take that many casualties. But now the emus knew it was war. They're like, okay. So the second battle took place on the 4th of November. And again, another ambush where there was like a thousand plus emus that were heading towards this water source. And so they waited and they waited until the birds were like point blank range where they couldn't miss with these machine guns. And they started to fire and the guns jammed and the emus got away. (laughs) Again. Again, like maybe 10 emus were killed. So they scattered and that was it. And some think that the emus actually snuck into the army camp and like messed with the guns. So they might've had a, a advanced warning. No, not really, but you know, you never know. Okay. So then the final battle, 8th of November, the Australian army is getting killed in the press, making fun of them. They, they're losing this war to the emus. So they said, that's it. We're going in with everything we got. They went out. When trucks and everything they could, they fired thousands of rounds, thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition, and they ended up maybe killing 50 birds. <laughs> Out of 20,000, the emus were just too fast, too smart, too quick. 
Mm-hmm. They were too much of a foe for the Australian army. So the government pulled the army out and said, that's it. You're on your own. We can't. Hands up. A, yeah. Well, here's our white flag. <laughs> it's So of the day, an ornithologist of Dominic Cerventi said, the machine gunner's dreams of point blank fire into a seared mass of emus were soon dissipated. The emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics and its unwieldy army soon split up into innumerable small units that made use of the military equipment uneconomic. A crestfallen field force therefore withdrew from the combat area after about a month. (laughs) The Australian army tucked its tail between its legs and waddled home on their trucks with their machine guns and the emus stood victorious on the wheat fields of Campion, Western Australia. Incredible. I'm still eating my popcorn. This is, this is awesome. Who needs a big screen movie theater when you have a story like this? That is just... <laughs> I think they're making a movie. It's like a comedy, obviously. Oh, man. But Chris, that story really does illustrate human wild conflict to like the highest degree that I think we've talked about on the podcast. I don't know if we've had anything like a war. Like a war. Yeah. Against, yeah. yeah. Oh, geez. It's but just... thank goodness over time there there a lot has changed uh, <laughs> for emus and farmers and their relationship. First of all, I believe the emus are federally federally protected. So there's mm-hmm. that. They don't have to worry about machine guns coming after them. <laughs> so that's a bonus. But also, we'll talk about it when we get to nutrition and emus and how they're generalists. And they, of course, eat a lot of plant material and seeds, as Chris Mm. Chris mentions. But they, being a generalist, they will eat some insects. And a lot of small insects will fall prey to the emus. And so certain farmers and ranchers throughout Australia have actually set up water sources for the birds to utilize Mm. and be attracted Mm -hmm. to. Which lets the emus expand, of course, into areas that they wouldn't normally go to because it's either too dry or just not very uh, habitable. And certain farmers and ranchers love the fact that the emus will eat caterpillars and grasshoppers and other insects that devastate crops. And some of the sheep farmers appreciate emus because the emus will eat this plant that makes like a really spiky burr. Mm-hmm. And then the sheep that they're uh, farming wool for will actually get caught up and entangled in this burr. And so by having more emus around where the sheep are grazing, it keeps down some of the plants that are not helpful to uh, the sheep. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a really m- mutual relationship and definitely not one so uh, wrought with conflict, as Chris mentioned earlier. <laughs> Well, now, I, I'm not, I don't know if these are wheat farmers. I don't think these are wheat farmers I'm talking about. But <laughs> certain, farmers. certain farmers and certain yeah. ranchers, mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. crops, and depends on what they're uh, what. I they're think it was part of the armistice. The emus made sure that they got good terms of never again. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but what? Yeah, and I think what they're. I think what the farmers have found too. If they don't want emus around, they just they can fence things off. And yeah. Yeah, they're, the, the fence they're, is they'll listen better. to the fence. They can't fly. They can, don't break through at the fence. The fence. Yeah, the fences today versus probably a hundred years ago mm-hmm. are, are probably not as great. But I, I just I love that story. Oh, I love you, Australia. I really do. I'm I'm so glad I'm living down this this end of the earth. I will say you sent me that one night, and I was getting ready for bed, and I'm like, okay, I I, I got to read this, and I. It's so it was funny. yeah. It was uh, I. Tur- I definitely turned my Netflix off and was like, okay, this is way more entertaining. <laughs> the Great EV War, true story. All right, I have a good joke they like to tell down here in New Zealand about Aussies, so uh, I'll tell that after the break. But we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Welcome back. All right, as promised, and, and I'm thinking of Chantel, and Chantel, this is nothing against you. You're brilliant. And, you know, I remember back in the, the Ray Kangaroo, and this is when, you know, we started really messaging, and she's been a great supporter of the podcast for years. Um, a good friend, you know, yeah. Good friend, good friend to both Angie and I. And she, yeah, I said, don't eat kangaroo meat, just don't. And she, she, she wrote back, you can't say that. We eat kangaroo meat down here all the time. But I didn't realize I, I, she was right. They do sell kangaroo meat in stores. I saw it uh, there last month. And, you know, I apologize for that comment. Go ahead, eat your kangaroo. Uh, there, there are millions of them. A, a lot of them are sustainable. Some of the wallabies aren't, and we'll cover probably one soon in a while. But this joke is my favorite for the Kiwis over here. I always like to say, uh, when, a, when a New Zealander moves to Australia, the IQ of both countries goes up. So take a minute and think about that. <laughs> and my eyes are going left, right, left, right. <laughs> so the IQs of both countries go up, meaning we lost a dummy in Australia. Got smarter. Oh, so, I get it. Yep, yeah. Yep. Anyways. Okay. That's a uh, good one. Yeah, I know. It's just I always crack up uh, the Kiwis and the Aussies. But yeah, love you both. Emu evolution, we've done rat tights before. Pretty interesting. I mean, obviously, bird is a large class, but the, you go to infra class to get to the rat tights. And the ostrich, the rhea, the kiwi, the cassowary, and emu. So the only one we haven't done yet is the rhea. So maybe save that, that for next year. That would be fun. A South American yeah. friend, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I might do that. Now, in there is one flight bird. And that's the Tinnemus, 46 mm -hmm. species in the Americas. That's a rat type. So I covered this in ostrich a little bit, and I'll, I'll cover it again here in a second. But this is a bird that it doesn't like to fly, but it does, it can if it has to. And so okay. basically, they suggest, the scientists suggest that earlier versions of the rat types could fly. So the ostrich could, you know, like you said, big wings where the the emu doesn't and so a lot of the reason they can't fly is because they don't have a you know obviously they're big they're heavier but they they don't have that keel bone that we talk about we've talked mm -hmm. about that in some birds yeah it's like a breastbone where mm -hmm. they're uh where the wings attached to right yeah well and the, the pectoral muscles There's yeah the pectoral sorry pectoral muscles, muscles. That's yeah 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 so like <laughs> if you you know talk carve a turkey for those that eat meat you know you go and you and you have that large breastbone in the middle that's because they fly you know turkeys can fly and a lot of these other birds can fly well the rat tights are the ones that can't fly don't have that bone it's flat okay. mm -hmm. now the interesting the tinnitus does so they do have a keeled sternum but again they don't fly as much but DNA and genetics has put them all together, so there's no doubt that that is part of that family. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, in the order is the Cassiiformes. So this goes down to the cassowary and emu. So they're in their own order. So we did cover episode 79 was cassowary. One of my favorites, dad of the year. That's one of my favorite funny stories. Mom lays an egg, walks off, and dad does the rest. Oh, so. yes. Oh, yes. It's so great. Family is Cassaridae, same as above. Your cassowary is emus. Now, the genus is Dromaeus, and the species name is... God, this species name is ugh, a mouthful. Dromaeus 
Nove Hollandia. It is a big one. N-O-V-A-E-H-O-L-L-A-N-D-I-A-E. Noven Hollandia. Yeah, I don't know who named the emu, but geez, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, there were subspecies, Angie. This is where... Yes. Yeah. It yeah. was, I had no idea. And uh, yeah. some small ones, right? Yeah. Dwarf, uh, dwarf emus. They were on Kangaroo Island, King Island. Europeans came along. They're extinct. And then in Tasmania, they had a subspecies that became extinct uh, 140 years ago, 150 years okay. ago. Mm-hmm. So Europeans, oh, this looks like good food. And then boom, ate them. Now, the ratites, again, are birds evolving way back when dinosaurs were still around 100 million years ago. They're, the initial thought with this, the, these classes of birds was in the supercontinent Gondwanda. It split, and these birds kind of were on the rafts. But DNA is some, has put some of this in debate because okay. what I found interesting is the kiwi is... Clo- the most closest related to the elephant bird, right, which is in I Madagascar. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes no sense. The kiwi mm-hmm. in New Zealand, where I'm at, is more closely related to the elephant bird, which was in Madagascar that went extinct 500 years ago. I think they think it was the last one was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was very interesting. Obviously, the emu and cassowary are are really closely related. The moa, which was one of the tallest until the elephant bird came around, here in New Zealand, that went extinct about 300 years ago. Uh, Yeah, about 300 years ago when they went extinct, is most closely related to the tinnimus, which is in the Americas. All over the map, Chris. And then you have the rias. And then you have the ostriches, which are just their own separate family, which is weird. You would think elephant birds and ostrich would be more closely related. So this DNA studies, and it's not just one, there's been a few of them, has thrown a lot of the origin of ratites into disarray. We honestly don't know how they kind of evolved with their, and again, their bones don't fossilize as well. So it's kind of tougher sometimes. And yeah, the tallest bird ever that we know of was the elephant bird. And they called it that because Arab traders thought it was a bird that could carry an elephant away. Right. I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they thought it was That's so how big, big the bird is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was 10 feet tall, like 1,600 pounds, 700 oh kilograms. Goodness. It was massive, massive. So whenever we talk about the ratites, yeah, that was the biggest, like bulkiest rat height ever so yeah fun stuff always with them now here again this is where emus it's just it's so interesting compared to say an ostrich ostriches we, we talked about them they, they can live on average up to 50 years right 40 50 years mm-hmm. the oldest one we think of lived up somewhere 70 something years under human care but still lived a long time emus 10 years in the wild maybe up to 20 years under human care. That's such a big difference in the two birds. Yeah, they they have a lot more hardships, I think, out mm-hmm. in the wild, that big periods of starvation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's uh it can be it can be tough being a wild emu, that's for sure. Yeah. That doesn't include having an army after you, also. <laughs> They're better at surviving that yeah. dodging, did you know, zigging Seriously. and zagging the machine gun bullets. Oh, I love you emus. Now, I can ask you, who's faster, ostrich or emu? You probably know that. Uh, Ooh, I stumped you. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to say a, I know emus are faster than cassowaries. But I'm going to have to go with ostriches just because they're that much taller and their legs are that much longer. Are you sure? Uh, maybe. <laughs> You're right, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Trickster. I just, I just said that because going back, oh, this is so long ago. I, did we interview him during the Xander when Xander was like young? Oh, Xander's yeah. Xander's nearing teenage years now. 
And he was telling me how the platypus lived in the Amazon River. And I was like, are you sure? And he's like, yep, "Yep, double down. (laughs) Oh, that hasn't changed. He will triple down. And uh, Uh, I'm always working on it. I'm like, honey, sometimes it's better to be kind than to be right. Okay. We're we're working on that one. But uh, yeah, no, it's good thought process. Yes. Ostriches are definitely faster. 40 miles per hour. That's like 60 something kilometers per hour. Emus only reach speeds of 30 miles per hour or 50 kilometers per hour. Which is really fast. Yeah. And ostriches, I mean, they're, look at all the predators. I mean, there's predators in, in obviously in Australia, Mm -hmm. but you know, you have cheetah, leopard, lion, hyena, you know, all these things that can chase an ostrich. Uh, Whereas in the emu, you have dingoes, obviously, that's, Mm -hmm have only been around 50,000 years, but they haven't wiped the emu out. So, right. you know, I'm saying 50,000 years is when the dingo was introduced or what we think was introduced to Australia. Anywhere from 25 to 50,000 years ago, if I remember that right, because they came with the Aborigines. Yeah, that was a good episode a while back. Yeah, yeah, dingoes. And so- Episode 243. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. I love our Aussie animals. So, yeah, I mean, the emus- didn't have to be as fast right to some of these mm-hmm. others right okay mm-hmm. but their their feet and legs yes. are designed for running right yeah 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 they have those uh, emus have three forward facing toes and no rear facing toes mm-hmm. whereas the ostrich chris it's really weird that they only have two toes on each foot yeah yeah i mean talk so. about dinosaur feet like if you want to see what a dinosaur foot looks at Looks like, you know, uh, at a stoplight, I mean, <laughs> Melody yesterday, or wherever you are, just Google like ostrich feet or emu feet. And, and that to me is what a dinosaur foot looks like. Like that's for what the sure. footprints. Yeah, for the sure. The footprints that we find. Uh, well, and for the emu too, is similar to their cassowary cousin. And then they have a really sharp claw on their toe, which they will use for uh, defensive as a defensive mechanism. Uh, and with kick, kick, kick to an opponent, either during breeding season or if they are being preyed upon or something. And this uh, claw on the toe can be up to six inches or 15 centimeters in length. So why was I standing two feet from an emu getting a selfie and the cassowaries behind like barbed wire fencing. Like, uh, because you know, Chris, yeah. I think you might be one of those New Zealanders yeah. that moved to Australia, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> but I'm bump. I, okay. <laughs> I got. I got. I got. I got to stick up for Australia a little bit over here. Right? Right, right. Oh, yeah. God. There you go. You got me. You got me. You okay. shouldn't be. Yes. That is. I think that's the message. Of no. The no. Moral it, it, was, it was in a free ranging where like you had the the kangaroos and well, hopefully those uh, the the keepers of the owners know that their emus are extra loving. I I guess. I mean, they're just not as as worried about them. Sli- but we did. Well, do, we busted that myth with the cassowary. There's like no, they can really hurt you. But maybe they, I don't know. Maybe they're more territorial. I don't know. Yeah, I think in general that what I was reading with emus and their behavior is they 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 do have powerful legs and they can kick and they do have these sharp claws on their toes. But in general, they're so fast that's going to be their primary mechanism of of survival. It's just mm-hmm. run. Mm-hmm. So whereas I think the cassowary is a little opposite. They're like. Let's go. Like, yeah, they're looking for a fight, basically. Well, and it, it's backed up with leg muscle too. I think the emus have, they call it a calf muscle. Like, I, I tried to get, in, I, I pulled up a study on the physiology, and I have the picture of it in front of me. Uh, it's not a calf muscle like we think of our calves because they have a long foot bone, but they're very muscular. The shoulder down. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, I mean, emus are unique. Uh, for all the bird species, and that they have this calf muscle, also known as a gastrocnemus. Mm-hmm. So it's like in humans, it would be somewhat, the location would be similar to our calf muscle. It's just high, more elevated for, like it's a, a slightly different location for them. Yeah. And the human calf muscle, uh, it's so cute. When I used to teach anatomy and physiology to my mm-hmm. nursing students, mm-hmm. I would always remind them that the gastrocnemus, the reason it was named that is because in humans, the calf muscle, it has it has like two bundles, and I guess some scientists or whatever thought it looked like like two little bellies. So the gastro is actually in reference to your oh, belly. Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. So okay. they call it like little bellies. Anyways, it's just a trick to help remember the names of because of course in science you can't just call it a calf muscle. It has to be called the gastrocnemius if you're doing anatomy and physiology. And so yeah, but the uh, emu I think has um, three bundles, so they mm-hmm. have uh, it looks so, it looks somewhat differently, but it's pretty makes their legs really powerful, right? Mm-hmm. And it's pretty unique to the emus. So yeah. uh, it's probably used more for the speed and the running than the actual kicking. But they mm-hmm. but they definitely can they they can kick if they need to. Well, yeah, I mean they I mean the dingoes they they have to defend themselves against dingoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a natural predator. There's some eagles out there that can prey on some adult emus, and then obviously the chicks are more prone to introduce foxes and cats and mm-hmm. little dogs. You know, besides dingoes and other birds of prey, so. Not easy out there. No. Well, and what I didn't realize, we always think of emus as running fast, but they also have a really decent vertical jump. So I take that back earlier in the episode. I guess they probably could jump over some of the farmer's yeah, fences. Yeah. They say that if the emus are running, they can get 2.1 meters or about 6.8 feet off the ground, which wow. is no That's joke. That's my head. That's over And this is head. with no wings, right? They yeah. have this little vestigial, we- yeah, vestigial yeah. wings. That's all legs. So, yeah. And then the other thing... I. I need to see this to believe it, but they also said that they're really they're strong swimmers. Mm. For some reason, that I have a really hard time visualizing. So we'll have to look scour YouTube for that. And living in Australia, of course, emus have a, adopted several other adaptations to make them these incredible uh, generalists that can live many different places and eat lots of different things, which we'll talk about nutrition. And one of these adaptations that I thought was really awesome is their eyelids. And so an emu has two sets of eyelids. Mm -hmm. So a normal one, like we think of us humans having, where it'll blink and it helps lubricate the eye. And then they have a second transparent set of eyelids that basically will go over their eye to keep out dust when they're running. (laughs) So yeah, that way they can actually see where they're running without actually getting dirt in their eyes. So yeah. That always reminds me of the uh, camels have the thick eyelashes to help protect them. But yeah, this second eyelid is a pretty cool adaptation to help keep them seeing clear while they run fast. And another really cool behavioral adaptation that the emus have come up with is this migration that Chris talked about briefly. And in different parts of Australia, of course, the rainfall can be somewhat seasonal and, of course, unpredictable or sparse. And so researchers think the emus actually tend to shift some of their migration based on rainfall mm-hmm. and that because it's based on rainfall, emus rely on cues about rain in the area, which means that they can hear and interpret sounds of thunder from really, really far away, smell wet ground that might be miles and miles away. Or even rely on the clouds, like looking at them and saying, Mm -hmm. as us humans sometimes do, like, oh, that looks like a rain cloud in this direction, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then go from there. So it's very well noted that the how they migrate is based on rainfall. And so they think that there's these awesome cues that they've adapted over time to learn how to get to the rain or get to water in their favor. So Probably just psychic, you know, they're just psychic. (laughs) Yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, that's how they figured out, okay, they're coming to set up these machine guns. We'll, we'll wave and... We got them. Show our fannies and then take off running. And good luck. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. They're, they're amazing. I these, know, but it's like, are, a, yeah, are, it's like yeah. a sixth sense. Pretty cool. That's a fun Regardless, uh, yeah, 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 I, I want to learn more about them. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, they are. They're, they are amazing. Well, it's some of the things they eat. They're more, mainly herbivores. So we talk about, again, that seed dispersion, fruits other plants that they'll, they'll do that, but they do eat some insects, maybe some small animals if they can catch them, you know, being curious about a bird, but mainly that, you know, they're herbivores. And one of the things is they don't drink as often. So like Angie said, water is a big thing because a lot of part of Australia, I'm thinking of like the 40 degrees Celsius or 110 degree heat out in the deserts, you know, those birds and they survive. Yeah, they well, and they, yeah. they do want daily access to fresh water. And, mm-hmm. and this migration, I probably didn't mention it previously because I was so enthralled by mm-hmm. <laughs> by how they migrate mm-hmm. with the rain. 
or knowing where it's going to rain. But yeah, I mean, they go hundreds of miles to find food and water sources during their migration. And they ideally ha- would like to have access to fresh water, mm-hmm. uh, especially when they are migrating and if it's, if, they're, if it's not during breeding season. So yeah, I mean, they, in, in that case, they won't be super picky with what they eat, but they are smart about what they eat. When they get a chance, they try to concentrate their nutrients and eat like young shoots from plants or the seeds, mm-hmm. as Chris mm-hmm. mentioned, or fruits or flowers or things that are going to have more nutrition and pack a bigger, bigger punch per pound than dried grasses or yeah. old leaves and stuff like that. I thought it was interesting, too, is that emus have no crop which that's the uh, anatomical feature in birds. But instead they have an esophagus that has been modified to store food for about 30 minutes before it actually enters the stomach. Yeah. So it is pretty common to see an emu ingesting pebbles to help grind their food up as well. And and sometimes charcoal. So there you go. There you go. Well, yeah, I mean, they they are built for surviving uh, in these these rough, harsh environments. Yeah, they and they will of, store a lot of fat when they when they do come across a, a a lot of food. They'll they'll definitely fatten up, which will yeah, and they lose like half of it when they migrate, right? Like they can lose mm-hmm. a lot of body mass. Mm-hmm. Well, behaviors. I mean, it's so far what we've covered. Like they can dodge bullets. They can predict the rain. What are some of the other things that they do? They're amazing. These are. Well, they're fun. They're fun to watch. They're, yes, they're very yeah. playful and very curious with each other, with other animals. So if they are under human care, make sure the next time you go to your accredited zoo to watch the emus because you, that you'll definitely be entertained. Uh, they're, they're a fun creature. They're moving around. And of course, they're curious as a generalist. They're always looking for food, right? Like that's, that's in their DNA, like must mm-hmm. find food at all times. But in general, they're they're active during the day and they will hunker down at night, although they wake up a lot of times throughout the night, always worried about predators and threats and things like that. So they sleep pretty light. Emu is typically a solitary bird, but can also exhibit these social behaviors and get along with birds when they need to, I don't know, combat the Australian army. <laughs> army. <Okay. laughs> or, you know, eat farmers' crops or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So they can sometimes be seen sharing nests or searching for food together. And for some of these migrations, you'll see large groups migrate all at once from one food source to the next food source. So they can, like I said, they'd be very pleasant, get along with themselves and then with other animals as well. Unless it's egg incubation time and then Mm -hmm. the cassowary in them comes out. And we'll talk about that a little bit when we get Mm -hmm, to reproduction. mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. What are, so social social behaviors that what was that booming we heard? Yeah, that we started so, with. Yeah, right. That's emus being friendly, talking to each other, mm-hmm. communicating to one another, and they make that booming sound, which can be heard up to about two kilometers away. Oh. They make that sound by using like an inflatable neck sack, at, or it's also called like a tracheal pouch, and so. During breeding season, it'll become more prominent mm-hmm. and it will basically allow for the sound to be made. And so, Chris, other than the booming signature call that they're known for, they can also grunt and whistle. And they're also known to make like a signature emu sound uh, as well, which is where they got their name from, the emu. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they definitely are a bird that can express a lots of different vocal communication tactics and in addition to these different vocalizations they'll use their body language as well to help communicate their feelings with other Mm. other emus so that gets me into so how do they feel i guess the because you always whatever we come to birds it's just the first thing i think it's fun the courtship is always so courtship behaviors and you're always like i want john to do this bird and i want john to do that bird (laughs) And uh, it just always comes in my head. So what does courtship look like or what are some of the behaviors? Well, I definitely want John to be like an emu and <laughs> take care of the children while mm-hmm. I'm out and about. And I'm just he, does, he, does, <laughs> he, he does. He does. He does. He does. He does yeah. Yes. Today I went swimming. Yeah. He had the kiddos. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the horse farm. So, yes, he is a very emu dad. Uh, he is the emu for me. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they're great dads. And we'll talk about that. But. First, we have to talk about their courtship behaviors. Emus are polyandrous breeders, 
So not all, but some females will engage with multiple partners. And depending on where they live in Australia, the breeding season or mating season will be from December to January. Mm-hmm. And it usually starts with females selecting males and then engaging in a courtship dance. And during this time, it's actually common to see the females fighting for a male that they have interest in. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so those That's rare. those happens, claws so. will come out when the girls are uh, when the girls yeah. are feeling it, and yeah. they see they see a male emu that they like. But once that happens, and the male's interested as well, the female emu will start making some of these booming drum-like sounds. Mm-hmm. And if the male decides that she's of interest to him and and he's of interest to her and back and forth, uh, they'll start to engage in a courtship dance. And so the dance is going to be some struts and snake-like head movements. Yes, John, if you're listening, I would like more of that in our life. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> a little, mm-hmm. little dance moves is always good. And the female is also sussing the male out. Even though she likes what she sees visually, she needs to see some of his dance moves to really help her seal the deal and for, mm-hmm. and, and for things to move forward. So it's important that he dances well and looks good with his strutting and his head snaking. Otherwise, she might change her mind or sometimes she can actually become aggressive, mm-hmm, <laughs> I guess, which mm-hmm. is not very nice. Uh, and so whether or not they breed is actually ends up being dependent on the male's performance and how the female feels about it, even though she fought to get his attention in the beginning. Actually, a lot of this sounds very human-esque, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it goes, basically, yeah. it goes back and forth and back and forth. It's not mm-hmm. just a, like both parties are involved in the selection, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, at the very, the very final stages, the female will suss him up for his, uh, some of his uh, courtship or dance moves. The really fascinating part with emus is once they breed, the male will start making a nest and he is makes very diligent about doing it. And the female may lay anywhere from five to 24 eggs. So that's a a fair. Yeah, a fair amount of eggs. And Chris, the eggs are just stunning. I don't know if you've ever seen an emu egg, but they're gorgeous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, They're deep green with blue hues. They almost look like a glossy avocado and they're Mm -hmm. of course they're pretty big in size not as big as the ostriches Mm -hmm. egg right but good size and really really beautiful and once she lays her eggs she's out she's she's done the male will take over and incubate the eggs for about 50 to 56 days he he sits and he waits and he aggressively defends his nest and he, the male emu during this incubation times of his eggs does not eat anything, drink anything, or even pass any feces or any waste. He's just there. Yep, he lives just off there. of fat that's been stored. Mm-hmm. He's just there. And the male emu is in it to win it. <laughs> what is with this cassowary's emus? They are the top dogs. Top dads. Oh, top dads. Such of the top bird dads. World. I will say the the great hornbill too, who she loses all of his feathers and he is constantly flying back and forth, feeding them both, all the chicks. So there's a lot of great bird dads. Yeah. And the female emu, bless her heart, she isn't done. She will breed with other males. Uh, female emus can actually store sperm as well. Mm-hmm. So and this is not every female, but uh, well, she might actually lay another clutch. She may continue laying eggs every three, four, five days after her initial clutch was laid. She's busy. She's very busy, but it can come at a a cost because if she's running around doing all these things and having all these eggs, if there's not a male around, she can risk uh, them not being incubated. So it, it's it's not always perfect for the female emu. She doesn't have it all figured out. But that's it for the female. She doesn't have any interest in seeing those eggs hatch. Again, uh, same thing. It's the same. Mm-hmm. I didn't read it because I, I wanted to be surprised. 
So you're telling me they are exact same thing. The emu dads raise the chicks just like the cassowary dad. Yes. And not only do oh, they yes. raise the chicks, <laughs> but they are like really, really, really good dads. They take care of them. They take great pride in protecting, mm. obviously, not only their nests, but also their chicks. And so uh, after hatching, the males protect the flock. So anywhere from five to 24, I think 24 is obviously on the high end. And basically teach them how to feed themselves. He gets them up and around, shows them the ropes, especially if they're a generalist on different types of foods that they eat, what predators are. And the male will, once again, aggressively defend his chicks, uh, not only to other emus, but even to the mother if she crosses their path. So pretty unique in the bird world. And then he, the male emu hangs out and sticks with the chicks at least up until they're independent, like seven up to seven months until that's crazy. they're that's big nuts. and grown. And, yeah. and uh, emus have a little bit slower generation interval where they really become independent around 15 to 18 months. But he's, he's sticking up. He's keeping with them for half a year, uh, making sure that they're alive and doing what they're supposed to do. And yeah, the female, I mean, she's just, she's just out there eating bugs <laughs> And seeds and... I mean, okay. If we go back to Cassowary. If you haven't heard that episode, we were amazed. A credible, incredible dad. I will give the females credit. They use up a lot of resources to produce those eggs. A lot of body reserves. They, a lot. Thank you. It's, Amen. I still have those body reserves that I yeah. stored. <laughs> it's, but, you know, it's like we go the emperor penguins, the... You know, the whole march of the penguins, the males are there for so long hatching the eggs. Females finally come back so the males can go eat. It, there's so much that goes into that egg laying and, and producing that. But hats off to the emu dads. Aussie yeah, dads, you're amazing. I know many you of them. Are. You are. Aussie yeah, dads. and of course, Aussie moms are great too. But obviously they are, yeah. Obviously. But the dads too, the, the, the emu nest is flat. It's not like big and round like you maybe think of a, a nest in a tree or something. And so the eggs will roll away. And so the, the dads have to really make sure that the eggs don't roll away. Mm-hmm. And they're turning them every couple hours. So they're not eating. They're not drinking. I mean, it's it's pretty, it's really impressive. And uh, and so, yes, cheers. Well, you you, you got to look out for those Aussie moms, like the qual that eats their babies. But yeah, <laughs> the ones that don't make it. Well, like I said, the moms yeah. have to do all the all yeah, the physiological yeah. hard work. So, mm-hmm. um, you know what? If somebody will babysit our eggs once in a while, like let it happen. Let yeah, it awesome. happen. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. I love birds. Well, our emus are doing well, like Angie said, you know, around 700,000 plus. But they are... There's still more development going on, mining going on, habitat loss is 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 a, is a thing, fragmentation. Yeah, and I was reading that uh, the emu population in New South Wales North Coast bioregion and Port Stephens have emus listed as endangered in those mm-hmm. areas by the New South Wales government. Yeah, I mean, it, so certain populations. Yeah, near big cities, urbanization. All of those things are definitely a danger to these birds, but as a species well, overall, you know, surviving. Yeah. And I didn't realize too, the emus were reinduced to Tasmania as well. Right. So they are, yeah, in certain, certain parts where, you know, again, 1865 is when they were uh, eradicated or hunted mm-hmm. to extinction there. So now organizations, uh, we love our Aussie organizations. We've been covering quite oh, a bit. Oh, yes, Chris. I'm really excited about the group this week. Huge shout out to Australian Wildlife Conservancy. They can be found at australianwildlife.org. And this is one of the world's largest conservation organizations. And they have done a lot to conserve uh, almost 13 million hectares in different areas throughout Australia, which of course is meaning land for several different species of uh, native Australian wildlife. The programs are just incredible. The Australian Wildlife Conservancy looks out for ecological health monitoring, research, uh, feral fox and cat control, feral herbivore control, I think that means bunnies, fire management, weed Mm -hmm. control, wildlife translocations. So, so many programs uh, that are looking out for 
the land and the animals, the native animals that inhabit it. Hats off to Australian Wildlife Conservancy. Check them out at australianwildlife.org. And of course, on all your favorite social media platforms, give them a like and a follow, and you can learn more about this organization and what they're doing and how you can also help, especially if you're from Australia. But even if you're from far away, uh, there's tons of other ways to get involved and their website's really well done. I learned a lot. Uh, keep in there tons of news. They have a really great news newsletter that you can subscribe to and they'll let you know what's going on and all the updates and on different uh, environmental issues that are happening. Yeah, no, great. Thank you for the work you're doing. In Australia, you know, thank you for preserving all your species and fighting for them. I know there's many that listen to this podcast uh, involved in that, involved in the work or or care. You know, you, you, you do care. So, uh, you know, we thank you so much for listening. We, I loved my time there. It's fine. You're right. When I leave New Zealand, the IQ goes up and Australia's goes up. <laughs> Australia's goes down, whatever it is. That joke. I tell that tongue in cheek because I know Aussies like to dish it out too. And, and I cannot wait to get back over there uh, this year to see you and, and see more of your wild spaces and, and zoos and animal conservation centers. So thank you so much for doing that. And thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. Share your emu photos with us. Uh, once again, we're All Creatures Podcast at Facebook and Instagram. We, we would love to see more of those birds in actions, especially if there's one of them swimming, but just in general, that iconic blue hued neck and their crazy shaggy feathery heads. I can't get enough. So thank you for listening, learning, conserving. And once again, a huge shout out to Nick. Happy birthday. This emu's for you, buddy. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.